0: on Local Now, Channel 525.
1: This week's The Interview is brought to you by andrewandtodd.com. andrewandtodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888-888-1172, 1172 And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition Of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. This is a special treat for me because I am spending a lot of time today with N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England. He is one of the leading scholars of the Bible in the world. He is now serving as the chair of the New Testament Early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews. And he has a brand new book out How God Became King. The Forgotten Story of the Gospels, which is linked at HughHewitt.com, which along with Simply Christian, I think, will become must-reads for almost everyone who concerns himself with these subjects. Uh, Bishop Wright, welcome. It's great to have you on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Thank you. Very good to be with you. It is a very interesting time to be speaking with you as Holy Week opens and with the elevation of Francis in Rome. Uh, on the latter, do you have a reaction to his election and his early statements?
0: Uh, well, I haven't seen very much um, of what's been going on because I'm extremely busy at the moment with trying to finish a different book but um, uh, it, it was extremely uh, exciting really to, to watch the election of a Pope from the Americas for the first time ever and particularly a Pope from the Third World for the first time ever if Argentina still counts as the Third World which I suppose it does and certainly his opening statements about um, the, the importance of the poor and the Church's focus on the poor um, sounded as though that really is absolutely at the center for him rather than simply being one of the things which we all know is important for him. It is, seems to be absolutely the center.
1: You will also be surprised, Bishop Wright, I think, when you read his inaugural homily to find him talking about in every period of history there are Herods who plot death, wreck havoc and mar the countenance of men and women given how in your new book how god became king the third part of your book is all about that and it's it's really quite eerie to have been reading his sermons while having been preparing for this interview and reading how God became king.
0: Well, I'm grateful for the tip. I need to go online and get that homily. Um, All I heard was little bits that were reported on our news bulletins, and as usual, the journalists just give you a quick soundbite, and that's it.
1: I I think you will find that first homily, it's linked at my website, to be quite amazing. Let's let's dive in then. Are you at all weighted down by the fact that Really, millions of people read your books and look to you for inspiration. Does that burden you?
0: Um, I don't really think about that too much. Um, Most of my time is spent actually thinking about the book that I'm currently trying to write. And as soon as that one's finished, I move on to the next one. Um, From time to time, it is a bit scary uh, to think of people reading stuff that I write. I I very much doubt it's in the millions, but it's certainly a a significant number. And uh, the way I deal with that is that every Sunday morning, I pray for the people who read... Um, what I've written, and especially for any clergy and preachers and pastors who are using stuff that I've written in order to preach and teach people, because that's a really, um, you know, th- that, that, that's a big thing. If, if I got something wrong there and they're teaching people from it, then we're all in trouble. <laughs> so I, I do pray regularly for the people who do that.
1: And, and do you mind or do you welcome the comparisons which are everywhere with C.S. Lewis?
0: Oh, um, I, I think it's, it's a, a, a facile comparison in many ways, but I, I think it's just that for some reason, C.S. Lewis was very important to me when I was young. And I um, I mean, that that's so familiar to people, of course, but in my case, I, I remember taking to heart his... Comments about what what you have to do if you're going to be a Christian writer. He had this wonderful advice. He said, first you have to be sure what it is you want to say, and second you have to be sure that you say exactly that. Now that sounds easy, but actually it's not. And uh, I have struggled, and um, sometimes I hope I've succeeded in a measure to to, to follow his advice. But I still, when I read him, I think you know here is a master. Um, I disagree with him on several issues, but his his writings style is just so extraordinary that, that I should be so lucky to get anywhere near
1: it. Well, you do, and How God Became King has much of that winsomeness in it. Now, this is the most recent of many books by you, and I always ask authors who produce many books, you know, it's your most recent, so it probably represents your most mature thinking or the evolution of where you are, but it it your favorite child? And do you have a favorite child among all those books? <laughs>
0: Uh, Somebody asked me that the other day, and it depends really how I'm feeling at the time. Um, Right now, the favorite child I have is the one that is struggling to be born, which is the enormous big book on St. Paul, which um, I I am still... Uh, i 'm fiddling with the footnotes at the moment and the bibliographies and stuff, so it 's basically written and it just needs to be polished off. Um, it should be out later this year, and uh, i I find great satisfaction in that, but um, as I look back, actually, I do find how God became king a very exciting book to have written and i 'm kind of surprised in a way that that, that I hadn't said it before, because now it all seems so obvious to me, and and yet I'm I'm aware, and this is the point of the book, obviously, that an awful lot of people simply haven't looked at the Gospels like this, and and I think we should. The the other one that is really a a big favorite child of mine is the um, everyone commentary on Acts. Um, I haven't written much about Acts before, but when I wrote that commentary, Acts for Everyone, um, it was... Enormously exciting. Uh, I, I was like going into retreat. I just had the whole of the Book of Acts in my head for uh, as long as it took to write it, and all I had to do was sit down at the desk, and it was like turning on a tap. Um, I just couldn't stop. It was it was a very exciting, exhilarating time.
1: Oh wow! Now the the, the opposite question: uh, those who write many books and essays have a few spokes that they've thrown. Is there one you wish you could recall that you wish you hadn't written? <laughs>
0: now that 's an interesting question i don 't think i 've ever been asked that before um, there's some essays that I think well i didn't really i didn 't really nail that one um, uh, but essays kind of go out into journals and they they get quietly forgotten. Um, I think some of the early volumes in the Everyone series. Uh, I was just trying to get into the style and the groove for that, and so I guess the Mark and Luke books, particularly. One of these days, I probably should go back and redo them. It won't be any time soon um, because I, I, I'm not sure that it all worked as well as it might have done. Um, yeah, that's that, that, that's that's actually quite a tricky quite a tricky question. I, I think as well. I have learned a huge amount in the last 20 years. I, my, my, my book writing has really been in the last 20 or 25 years. Um, I really got going when I was in my late 30s, early 40s. And uh, I, some of the stuff that I've learned in between does make me want to go back and uh, uh, do a, a quite fresh edition of the big book called The New Testament of the People of God, because there's a lot of stuff that if I was writing that now, I would put in and make more foregrounded um, than it was there. The, the problem is I don't have the time to do it, and it would result in the book growing to about eight hundred pages, which I don't think I particularly want to do. Well the
1: reason I, I asked that is because when I finished How God Became King, I said to myself wow, I, I've begun to think about the gospel writers as biographers. And uh-huh. and biographers look back at their corpus of work and Andrew Roberts is a friend and he says, you know, Salisbury's too long or this is too and, and William Blake's Disraeli. I think of these biographers And some things they would want to do differently. And you're a writer and you're a biographer of these gospel writers in many respects. And you wonder if they knew now what they didn't know then about how the church would use their work, what would they have done differently?
0: Yeah, now that's that's a fascinating question. And. I suppose they can be jolly grateful that they <laughs> that they didn't know the messes that we would have made, or they would have been tearing their hair out and saying, "Is, is it any point in us starting at all?" Um, because of course the culture has changed so much, and they could take so many things for granted that their readers and hearers wouldn't need spelling out, which we do need spelling out. Um, you know, we just uh, just do things differently, and we think of things differently. And uh, so little things which they could hint at, which their readers would pick up straight away, we have to spend ages looking things up in dictionaries and doing the historical background in order to gain one flicker of insight. So um, as things change over the years, that's, that's bound to be the case.
1: I'm talking with N.T. Wright. Uh, Bishop Wright's new book, How God Became King, is linked at HughHewitt.com. Bishop, we have about a minute and a half to our first break. Okay. Let, let, let's, could you just give us a quick summary of Canon Creed Gospel Dilemma?
0: Okay. Um, I grew up in a church which said and still says the creeds um, day by day and week by week. And in the creed, you get this statement that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And there's uh, a skipping over of a lot of material there, straight from um, Bethlehem to, uh, to, to Calvary, if you like. And the uh, Of course, the church's year does something similar that we go from Christmas to Easter with only really Lent and a little bit of epiphany in between. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't do that at all. They spend a lot of time precisely on the material between the one and the other. And so there's a kind of a mismatch. And I suspect that for that reason, a lot of Christians haven't really known what all that stuff in the middle is all about. And that, in my mind, goes with the question of what the Christian life is all about in between, if you like, the baptism and the funeral. Once somebody gets converted, what are they supposed to be doing between then and when they die? And
1: that is the subject of How God Became King, and I'll be right back with its author, Bishop N.T. Wright. Go nowhere, America. It's The Hugh Hewitt Show.
0: Welcome
1: back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's a special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. My guest is N.T. Wright, the author of the brand new book, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels, which is linked at HughHewitt.com, author as well of many other wonderful, amazing books, simply Christian among them. Um, uh, Bishop Wright, I'm using Mozart as my uh, breaks in and out today because of what you wrote on page uh, 157. I want to read it for the audience. You wrote, as I read the Gospels and think of what the church has done and hasn't done with them. I'm reminded of the wonderful scene in Peter Schaeffer's play Amadeus. There, the cynical old court composer Salieri contrasts his own operas, telling and retelling great tales of legendary heroes, but through stale and tedious music with Mozart's astonishing ability to take characters off the street and create something truly magical. He has taken ordinary people, says Salieri, ordinary people, butlers and chambermaids, and he has made them gods and heroes. I've taken gods and heroes and made them ordinary. So, Bishop Wright, how is that? What the churches Explain what you then went on to write about.
0: Well, I think when we read the Gospels, often we make Jesus just uh, another teacher, maybe a very fine teacher, but uh, but basically somebody who's telling us good advice about how we should live, about what the meaning of life is, and so on. And uh, then people read a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and especially in churches with, which use uh, a lectionary and work through the Gospels, as my own church does, um, you get maybe ten or twelve verses on a Sunday morning, and uh, the preacher will get up and turn that into a nice little homily about how you have to behave this week, or maybe how you should order your prayer life, or about the problems of, of the world, or something. And, and, uh, and we all sort of think, yeah, okay, fine, that's what that's about, and we go back to doing whatever we were doing. And meanwhile, I can see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, going about their business saying, no, you don't understand. This is explosive. This is something breaking in. This is something which turns the world upside down and inside out. And, and, and you just turn it into little bits of, of, of stuff. And, and so I'm uh, going back to Mozart, I, I have the image in my mind. Imagine you go to a concert hall and the concertmaster says, okay, this week we're going to have bars 22 to 53 of the second movement of the Jupiter Symphony and the orchestra plays just those 20-odd bars and then the concertmaster says, okay, that's all Um, come back next week and you get the next 20 bars and you think, no, this is an amazing symphony, I want to hear the whole thing because only then do we realise just how powerful and life-changing it is so uh, I think there's a sense of domesticating what is in fact uh, an extremely explosive, an extremely Extraordinary narrative, and and I think many Christians have just never even realized
1: that it's like that. Yeah, I, I'm going to give away the end of the book here. How God became <laughs> King. One of the things you recommend is something you did in the in the Durham uh, diocese, which is to during Holy Week, in fact, convene the church and read the entire Gospel. Now, I must tell you, as a Roman Catholic Presbyterian, and I can explain that later, <laughs> I always dreaded passion sunday because you had to stand up for the whole doggone passion and i you know you're a little kid and you're sitting there you oh, i don't so the idea of the whole gospel how did it go over with the congregation
0: i think they loved it um they they wove it into the liturgy or rather they wove the liturgy into it so that um each Sunday. I think actually, uh, I think it was through through Lent. I just can't remember the details now, but it was one of the churches in, in the city of Durham that that, that pioneered this. And uh, uh, they they began with, it was Luke that year, so they began with the opening of Luke, and they just read that straight off. Then they had the first hymn, and then they read the next bit, and then they did the confession and absolution. Then they did the next bit, and then they... Said the intercessions or whatever. So 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 it went, and it took a few weeks actually. Um, to, but but they got through it, and so, so they timed it so that, of course, the great passion story happened then on Good Friday, and the Easter story on Easter Day itself. But so by the end of the sequence, they had actually. Uh, lived through the whole of the gospel story, and they had, um, as I said, woven the liturgy, the stuff that you would normally have um, as the framework for the gospel reading. Instead, that became the filler in the the sandwich, and the outer bits of the sandwich was the gospel itself. That was hugely creative and innovative, and it's the kind of thing that does a bishop's heart good, actually, to think that your parishes are coming up with creative ideas like that.
1: Well, I I will tell every pastor and priest out there that If they get to the end of how God became king, they will be rewarded with some very concrete, practical suggestions okay. on how to introduce these elements into their worship. But now here's my my one overarching reaction before we go to the specifics, Bishop Wright. I, I am a a, a a dualist. I go to Mass on Saturday and to my Presbyterian church on Sunday, and I, I've had the benefit of both for many years, and a great theologian, and Mark Roberts is a friend and a pastor. So I actually don't—I I, I was— finding it a little alien as you talked about the dichotomy between the creed and the canon and the gospel. And I, and I began to ask myself whether or not Catholics, especially those who say the rosary, they always say the Apostle Creed and then it's immediately followed by the Our Father and they reflect upon the mysteries of the gospel, which are themselves, for example, the mysteries of light include the arrival of the kingdom. Or in a liturgical setting, you get the Nicene Creed, but you only get it after you get the psalm and the responsorial psalm, the Old Testament, the epistle, and the gospel. So maybe the, the disintermediation between canon, creed, and gospel doesn't happen among the more liturgically uh, rigorous? Is that well, possible?
0: It, it might. It, I mean, it's, it still can, because um, uh, it, it, it depends whether the... Uh, the teaching is framed by the creed or by the canon. The the creed was never designed as a teaching aid, but uh, in many traditions and in seminaries and in churches where they have teaching programs, people say, well, we want to teach people what the faith is all about, so let's go to the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and uh, so we'll talk about God and we'll talk about Jesus and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, But one of the key things, then, is if you ask the question, uh, when does the kingdom happen? when does the kingdom of God happen and for many many people many many Christians the kingdom of God means either uh, when we go to heaven when we die or something that will happen at the very end of time because the creed says he will come again and his kingdom will have no end and so people often imagine that the kingdom is something which will happen only in the future and this is really the burden of the song throughout my book of course that that in the gospels Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom he's launching the kingdom on earth as in heaven in the present. And and so I think however much people get the responsorial psalm and the Old Testament and the whole thing, and, and I love all that, uh, that's, uh, that's great, I'd much rather have that than not. Um, if they're still thinking in their heads and their hearts, um, but actually God isn't in charge, um, we're still waiting for that to happen, then they're missing out on something which is really central to, to what the four Gospels are trying to tell us.
1: Why do you think so many faithful Christians have missed that message of the kingdom of God? being present. We have a minute to the break, Bishop.
0: Uh, I think In our own day, it's partly because in the Western world, the 18th century enlightenment taught us to think of religion and spirituality as something private and and only personal and not public, and uh, so that the idea of God being in charge was quite offensive and still is offensive to many people because they think that means a, a kind of ecclesial totalitarianism where you get priests hotline to God telling us all what to do and making us all afraid. Um, and for 200 years, Western culture has been in severe reaction against that. So that is precisely the message of theocracy that people do not want to hear.
1: I'll be right back with N.T. Wright. Bishop Wright's new book, How God Became King, the Forgotten Story of the Gospels, is the perfect thing to read this weekend. next as Easter approaches. Go Nowhere America, it's the Hugh Hewitt Show four minutes after the hour, America 2 Hewitt, talking with Bishop N.T. Wright about his brand new book, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Uh, Bishop, I, I love great writing, and in great writing, there is always great metaphor. And in How God Became King, there are two. Uh, I'd call them killer apps, actually. the The, <laughs> the four speakers... And the disassembled car. And so at the beginning, before we plunge into what each of those speakers is or is not playing and at what level it is amplified or distorted, would you explain the four-speaker analogy, a metaphor? We'll come back to the car later.
0: Yeah, um, uh, I, I'm not a great electrician or whatever, but from time to time when we've moved house, one of the things we ask ourselves is, OK, we have an electronic sound system. Uh, uh, used to be a um, record player, and then it was tapes, and now it's CDs, and we want that in the living room. And where are we going to put the loudspeakers? And uh, if you have one of those really sophisticated sets that's got four loudspeakers, so you have one more or less at each corner of the room, um, you have to get them lined up and positioned but you also have to get them turned up to the right volume depending on where you're going to sit and so on so that you get the proper balance and uh, I've used that as an illustration because if you imagine those speakers are designed to make you feel as though you're in the middle of the orchestra if you listen to listening to orchestral music you'll have the violins over to one side, the basses over to the other side the brass somewhere else, the, the woodwind somewhere else and so you'll be able to feel spatially where you are in relation to them all. Now if one one of those speakers becomes unplugged or switched off, then the whole music is going to be distorted there'll be things you're meant to hear that you're not hearing at all or maybe only very faintly through the other speakers and so on and I found uh, as I, I've used that illustration many times in speaking before I finally wrote it down and it, it was interesting something I think that most of my audiences were able to to get hold of and understand and and part of my point then is to say that there are various themes in the Gospels um, which uh, need the relevant speaker to be turned up to the proper volume. Otherwise, we just won't get what's going on.
1: And if I can add a note of explanation, the four speakers are not the four Gospels themselves. They are four themes.
0: That's that's, that's important. Thank you.
1: Uh, So the first one, the four Gospels as the climax of the story of Israel, but but you, you note that that this speaker's kind of turned off because those creeds don't mention Israel at all.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's interesting, you've mentioned twice um, an earlier book of mine, Simply Christian. When I was writing that book, I thought to myself, well, what we'll have to have in the middle of it is a section on God, a section on Jesus, and a section on the Holy Spirit. And then I realized that actually, in order to get the Jesus section, I had to have a whole extra chapter on Israel because unless you get the story of Israel firmly in your head. In other words, basically the Old Testament story and then what comes after that. You just don't understand why Jesus is who he is. And and of course, the four Gospels knew that very well, and they tell the story in such a way as to make it clear. This is the climactic chapter in a much longer story or novel or drama or history, um, which they assume that their readers will know.
1: And that, the church today has failed to tell in its full implications for the gospel.
0: Well, I think that's right, because, I mean, a well-taught Christian to this day will no doubt know the story of Abraham, of Noah, of Moses, of David. And and we, you know, those of us who went to Sunday school still have got all that kept somewhere in our heads. But it's not usually seen as a continuous narrative running up to and climaxing in the story of Jesus. It's usually seen as a book of prophecies and illustrations and moral lessons and so on. And to be sure, it's all of those. And that's not wrong. But what it is much, much more is a single narrative of the way in which God's plan was working its way out. And that's the narrative that comes to its head in the story that Matthew, Mark Luke, and John are telling.
1: That's the first speaker, and at this point I want to introduce that at one point you say the so-called Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, and the rest are simply in another world. I thought to myself, using your analogy, it's like the person through the flat wall who's turned up their speakers very, very loud, and they're interfering with their music
0: yes that 's very good i 'm grateful for that next time I speak on it i will I will use that but that 's exactly right that, um, that, that it is interfering with the music and somebody has just recently produced a book called the uh, Is it the New Gospels or something like that i 'm not sure um, or the new no, the new New Testament um, uh, trying to make out that actually we need to get all those other books in there as well. in fact, they will pull away from. What Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing.
1: When I come back with Bishop N.T. Wright, we'll get to speakers two, three, four, as well as the other parts of his brand new book, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. It is linked over at com, And uh, stick around, there's lots more to cover that you do not want to miss with Bishop Wright. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm talking with Bishop N.T. Wright, one of the world's preeminent biblical scholars. Bishop Wright is the author of many books, which people keep close to their close at hand on their on their bedstand. His most recent book, "How God Became King," has just come out, called subtitled "The Forgotten Story of the Gospels," and uh, that's what we're talking about mostly in today's program. Uh, Bishop Wright, the second speaker in the analogy of the four speakers playing four themes, which have to be balanced in Christianity's story. Is about the story of Israel's God coming back as He always promised in the person of Jesus, and you write that that the modern churches amplified this part, this speaker, because of two reasons: the rise and the threat of the new biblical criticism and of the new atheists. I want to play for you an exchange. I've done, a, I've hosted a lot of debates about God over my years on the air, and and they're collected in a in an e-book called "Talking with Pagans." And the most memorable of all those exchanges occurred with Richard Dawkins, when he right. and I did this. Do you believe Jesus turned water into wine?
0: Yes. You seriously do? Yes. You actually think that Jesus got water and made all those molecules turn into wine? Yes. My God.
1: Yes. Okay. My I God, actually, not yours. But <laughs> <laughs> let me... realize the kind of person I'm dealing with now. The, that's the... And so... That sort of perfectly encapsulated for me what you were talking about. When you run into Dawkins all the time, the tendency is for someone in my business to turn up the volume.
0: Exactly right. Uh, it's very revealing. I've only met Dawkins a couple of times, but, but you know, he has lived all his life, or most of his life, in a world which is just the utterly secular world where any sort of God is just not wanted on stage. Thank you very much. Actually, it isn't a modern world that. It's it's, it's ancient Epicureanism in modern dress. Um, I, I don't know whether Dawkins realizes that or not, but th- this idea of banishing God away from the world so that he's got nothing to do with it. And then we overreact. And this is why uh, you rightly say, the loudspeaker's been turned up too loud, Christians overreact by saying, yes, God is so big, he can do anything, he's great, he does this, that, and the other. Um, And we forget the very specifically Jewish way of telling the story of God and the world, and this is actually very poignant. It's a story that that people don't really know. Um, but if you look at the book of Ezekiel, uh, there at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, it says that the people in Jerusalem and the priests in the temple have been so badly behaved and so idolatrous and so wicked that God is actually leaving the temple. And we have to realize that the temple in Jerusalem was always designed not to be just like a big church on a street corner somewhere, but to be uh, the one place on planet Earth where the living God Chose to dwell personally. It was his own residence. And so the idea he would leave and go somewhere we don't know where is terrifying. And of course, Jerusalem was destroyed as a result. But then the prophets like Isaiah, and I, the great prophet Isaiah, 40 to 55, particularly, uh, basically says he's coming back and you'll see him come back and you'll rejoice and celebrate because he's coming back and he's coming back to be king. And the New Testament is written to say, yes and he did it and it looked like this it looked like Jesus of Nazareth coming back and uh, coming to and he came to be king so we don't realize that this idea of a personal god who has long been uh, awaited is actually returning, and he, but he's not returning in a blaze of glory and flashing fire. He's returning in and as a human being. And that gives to the whole idea of who God is um, a, a much more focused... Um, image and picture, than we uh, certainly that I got growing up as a regular churchgoer or, or that I knew from my own theological training.
1: Now, what's very fascinating about this, because I'm afraid to turn down the volume of that second speaker because ah. of the noise out there, and a friend of mine, I consulted three people when I was getting ready to talk to you, and I asked, yeah. they're all great fans of yours. One of them, Steve Tim sent me this question, which fits right here. In applying the wide-angle lens of the new creation in the kingdom of heaven, does Bishop Wright sense any risk that a message of personal sin and salvation is lost and weakened? What is the message, I mean, i.e., is our traditional evangelical understanding of the Roman road string of salvation verse is still valid? And how would the bishop communicate that message to my unbelieving neighbor who wants to know why I am a Christian and why he or she should become one? And if we turn down the volume I'm adding this on, don't we don't we give up on that neighbor? No,
0: I mean, if you got the volume turned up too loud, um, then you won't be able to hear the nuances in the music. You know, you, you'll just blast everybody out and make the whole room shake, but you won't actually be able to distinguish the oboes from the clarinets, from the basses, from the violins going back to the orchestra again. Um, and, and it's the nuanced reading of the New Testament which will actually appeal because people don't know it. Christians don't know it, and atheists certainly don't know it. And so the atheists simply thinks that you and I believe in this big bully in the sky who is coming to get you and will occasionally do funny tricks like changing water into wine. But basically, he's a distant God who has got a very severe moral program for us. And he is uh, capable of doing anything he wants, but but we don't normally understand it. And this is a very un-Jewish vision of God. This is a combination of older pagan views of God. And part of our trouble in the Western world today is that we've forgotten that there are many different uh, meanings to the word God. And clearly, Dawkins has one vision of uh, of who God is in his mind, and it's quite different from what you find in the New Testament. So we have to turn the volume down so that instead of people just hearing us thundering on about God, 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 we actually say, no, wait a minute, we're talking about the God we see in Jesus. Now let's just calm down and look more closely at this. And you see, this fits because one of the things that we learn when we do that, is that God isn't a big thundering bully? That God is like Jesus. Um, uh, Michael Ramsey once said, uh, "Great Archbishop Michael Ramsey once said that God is Christ-like, and in Him is no unChrist-likeness at all." That's part of what it means to believe in the incarnation. Saint John put it like this: "No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made Him known." Now we've we've shouted so loud, God, 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 but people have heard the God of late western imagination not the god of the bible
1: when we come back from break i'm going to ask bishop Wright in our short three minute segment before hour two what about the hitchens problem because my friend christopher was my guest 70 times on this radio show and i don't think i made a dent and we did not shout and so the question is what do you do with what the roman catholic church would call the invincibly ignorant, uh, because the speakers don't matter. I mean, but we'll also come back an hour or two with the other speakers and the problem of Caesar. Don't go anywhere, America. Bishop N.T. Wright is my guest. His book is How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Stay with us. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Bishop N.T. Wright, his brand new book, How God Became King.
0: Bishop Wright, did you know Hitch? No never met him, or his brother either, who is still alive
1: yeah i've met i've talked with Peter on the air but right. uh, but but hitch was a a friend, a journalist friend, and seventy right. times he came here, and I never made a dent, or at least he said he never had a dent made what What happens there to your idea of balancing the speakers well
0: um in what I'm saying implies that if we do our homework and get it all right, everybody in the world is going to keel over and say, oh, I get it now, fine, okay, I'm going to become a Christian. It's it's much more complicated than that. Paul addresses this question in 2 Corinthians 4 when he talks about the God of this world blinding the hearts of unbelievers. And there's a, there's a deep mystery there. And I think part of the problem is that, again, in our modern world, modern Western world, we have assumed a sort of um, 18th century rationalism, which says, if I only explain this clearly, everyone will understand and believe it. And the trouble with that is that, uh, yes, I can explain it clearly. But if it requires a whole worldview shift, then people perhaps are never going to get it um, because they like the worldview the way they've got it. And unless something happens to jolt them out of that, um, then they, they may well just... Not want to change
1: at all. Now I'm not going to ask you whether you think Hitch is up in heaven or down in hell, but I do want to, to say to people that you deal with the problem of hell in how God became king, but in an, in an interesting way in that you, you just urge people a more sophisticated version of it. But you do believe in hell, correct?
0: what you mean by hell, like it depends what you mean by God. Uh, Let's put it this way. I do believe that all humans have the chance if they choose to dehumanize themselves by uh, the Bible has this word idolatry, worshiping idols. If you worship that which is not God, you stop being a genuine human little by little. And I believe that after death, if somebody has made that choice, no, I'm not going to worship the true God, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to worship whatever I want instead, then uh, that choice is, as it were, ratified and, and that God will not, um, as it were, change the rules of the game at the last second so that you don't have to... Um, suffer the results of the choices you've made. Now, if that's a way of talking about hell, then fine. Okay, my fear is that uh, our picture of hell often is actually a pagan picture. They they believed in hell in the ancient pagan Roman world. Uh, a lot They had a lot more in ancient um, classical mythology about hell than there is in the New Testament, curiously. Um, and uh, what happened in the Middle Ages was that people got hold of that vision of hell and they made that... A huge great bogey monster to beat people up with and so there's been a natural reaction against that by people who realize in the new testament that the picture is a bit different from that
1: i'll be right back with bishop n.t wright his new book is how god became king hour two straight ahead on the hugh hewitt show morning glory and evening grace america it's hugh hewitt if you missed the first hour of today's show you're really behind but you can catch up now my guest is bishop n.t wright His brand new book is How God Became King. And whether you're listening in Hawaii or down in Florida and Alaska, all the way down to Texas, you want to go out and get How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. As Holy Week opens, it's the perfect read for Holy Week. And it's available at HughHewitt.com and in bookstores everywhere. Bishop Wright, when we closed the last hour, we were talking about hell. And during the break, I grabbed an email from my friend Mike Regal, great fan of yours. And he said, you know, ask... Ask the bishop about surprise by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church, the section in which he says, just as many who were brought up to think of God as a bearded old gentleman sitting on a cloud decided that when they stopped believing in such a being, they therefore stopped believing in God. So many who were taught to think of hell as a literal underground location full of worms and fire decided that when they stopped believing in that, so they stopped believing in hell. The first group decided that because they couldn't believe in childish images of God, they must be atheists. The second group decided that because they couldn't believe in childish images of hell, they must be universalists. What's the implication of that for understanding what happens?
0: Yeah, I, I kind of like that sentence. I'd completely forgotten I'd written it. It um, must be nearly 10 years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the implication is that uh, we mustn't mistake the image for the reality. This is a sort of point C.S. Lewis loved to make, that we have been fed all sorts of picture images, and some sometimes they become difficult for us for whatever reason to accept. But that doesn't mean there isn't a reality. As far as I can see, the reality is that after people die, uh, the sort of creature or being they become depends on certain things that have happened during this life, and that one of those options is, as I was saying just before the break, um, that, that people, if they worship that which is not God, that's what the Bible calls idolatry, but to be a genuine human being, that is to be made in the image of God, you have to worship the true God, the one we see in Jesus, the one we know in Jesus. And Uh, So you have the choice. Either you become a more truly human, a renewed human indeed. Paul talks about being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator in Colossians 3. Or you become a creature that is becoming progressively less and less genuinely human. And I think hell, if you want to use that word, is the result of what happens when a creature uh, decides effectively to dehumanize Themselves and become a creature which is a very sad and and lost being altogether.
1: When Jesus in the Gospel says there will come a time when I will separate people into the burning lake and into those who are coming with me, what's he what's he trying to communicate, Bishop Wright?
0: Uh, which passage are you having in mind
1: here? Uh, the the, the sheep and the goat.
0: The sheep and the goats. Okay, um, well, Matthew twenty five um the, the the sheep and the goats it's actually it's actually a very interesting passage it's it seems to be a parable um and so as with all parables you have to be a bit careful not to take everything as a, a literal description of something that's going to happen. You know, when Jesus tells the story of the, of the sower sowing seed, this isn't an advice about how to run your farm. It's got quite other levels of meaning. However, it's very interesting that in the sheep and the goats, the people who end up as being the sheep on one side of him are the people who have... Um, served him in the in the persons of the poor and the needy and the people in prison and so on. That's actually a bit scary for many Christians, because many Christians are taught that the one thing that means you're a sheep not a goat is that you've made a decision that you've said a prayer, that you've asked Jesus into your life, etc. There's nothing about that in that passage. It's simply about whether you have um, looked after the poor and the homeless and the needy and the prisoners and the hungry and so on. Um, and so many Christians actually shy away from a bit because they say, hey, that sounds like justification by works. So this is why I say we've got to be a bit careful. That passage isn't the be-all and end-all of a heaven and hell picture. It's it's actually uh, a challenge to the church to be the church by discovering where Jesus is hiding in the persons of the poor. I think the new pope would be quite keen on that.
1: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, he is quite keen on that. Uh, uh, but Bishop Wright, in last question on hell, because I want to get back to the four speakers, is that uh, in your understanding, after a lifetime of study, because there's a few kind words for hell here, does it involve pain?
0: <laughs> you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Um, I, I don't know what the word pain would mean if somebody has passed from this world into a new one. However, everything that we know about pain makes you want to say, yeah, our idea of pain is probably as close as you can get. To it, but just like people say, will there be pets in heaven, or will there be this, or will there be that? The answer is all our language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a fog. They are true signposts, but they don't actually tell you um, exactly what it's going to be like when you get there. Um, so we, we do we do have to be careful. But yes, the sense of utter loss, utter sorrow, utter pain. Um, Uh, In dimensions that we find it very difficult to imagine. I think that's what we're talking about. Now, I want to, as we go
1: back to the four speaker analogy, urge my listeners who missed the first hour to understand that Bishop Wright is not talking about the four Gospels, he's talking about four themes of a complete understanding of Christianity, which all must be interwoven if you're going to understand the music, if you're going to appreciate the music. And we covered the first two speakers in the first hour. The third speaker, uh, Bishop Wright, is the Gospels represent the life of the early church, and that it's it's a real story of Jesus in the person uh, on earth at a particular time. But you think we've over-amplified this as well?
0: Yeah, I think what's happened is that we have often said, well, the Gospels are basically our instruction kit. This is Jesus telling us how to behave, and so we read the Gospels as that. And the danger with that, again, the music gets distorted. The Gospels are the story of something which happened uniquely. Uh, It's an event, a set of events to do with Jesus, as a result of which the world is a different place. Now, as a result of that, we do have a set of new tasks which we have to get on with, a new life which we have to lead. But if we simply read the Gospels as, oh, here's a book of moral in Construction, then it can come across as, oh, my goodness, it's Jesus just giving us a bunch of rules. Now, what are we going to do? Um, And then we miss the whole thing, which in the technical terms is the eschatological meaning. That is that that, that some great event has now happened, which has transformed the way the world is. So then... um, I mean, my parade example of this is with the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the meek and the poor in spirit and the peacemakers and the hungry for justice people and the mourners. He's not simply saying, here are the rules for how you are to be. He's saying... I am going to make sure that the world is now to be run by and through people like this. In other words, the blessing is not just on the meek and the poor in spirit. It's through the meek and the poor in spirit. This is how God becomes king.
1: I also have to pause and compliment you on a real eye-opening device to understand that the gospel writers were writing about Jesus in much the same way that a Brit would be writing about the Battle of Britain years down the road as a myth, not as something made up, something that happened, but with story and element of teaching and and goal built into it. It's just, it had never occurred to me, that's a marvelous analogy.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess you in America, you you, uh, tell the story of your civil war. I mean, I haven't seen the movie Lincoln, which I gather won some awards recently. But um, when Americans see the movie Lincoln, they are seeing part of their own history from 160 years ago, whenever it was 150 years ago. But they're also reliving a myth, a true myth about the nature of American society.
1: I think I can say with great certainty you will be captivated by the performance of Daniel Day Lewis as Ron, the sorrow. Yes, yes. Now, now back to to this third speaker. Then the foundation documents that are these gospels. They are not neutral report. I, by the way, your media criticism and mine matches up about a hundred percent. There is no such thing as neutral reporting. Sure. All stories are told from the point of view. And modern scholarship, biblical scholarship, overstates the idea that differences in accounts equal. Uh, a credibility assault. Can you expand on that for people? We have a minute to the break. Yeah,
0: I mean, it if- If you read four different newspapers reporting a football game that you were actually present at or that you weren't present at, but a football game anyway, um, you hope that the four different newspapers are going to tell you um, who scored the goals and uh, what the end result was and who was sent off for bad conduct or whatever. And if between those newspapers you discover that they're getting... Uh, events in a different order, or that the result of the game is different. You say, I can't trust these newspapers, I wonder which of, if any of them, is telling me the true story. Now people have come to the four Gospels and they've said, oh my goodness, there's something which happens in this Gospel which doesn't appear at all in that one, Um, so maybe maybe we shouldn't trust them. And people have said, uh, I tried to work out the resurrection stories, how many women went to the tomb and who ran where and which people they met, and it didn't seem to fit together So maybe we can't trust them at all. And, of course, in fact, the Gospels are doing something much more complicated than reporting on a football match. The Gospels, which most people now assume are written about 30, 40, 50 years after the time of Jesus.
1: Hold on to that thought, Bishop. I've got to go to the break. We'll come back and talk about what they're doing when we return with Bishop N.T. Wright. To the hour, America, Sue Hewitt. In the second hour of my conversation with Bishop N.T. Wright, who's the author, most recently, of How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospel. Of course, Bishop Wright is also the author of Simply Christian and many other wonderful books about uh, Christianity, and is an extraordinarily uh, well-respected biblical scholar. Uh, Bishop Wright, when you were talking about when we went to break, the gospel writers had a much more complicated story than merely reporting the results of a football game. And as a result, these discrepancies or these differences in account are simply not significant
0: in that they tell you which angle of vision that people are looking from um, they're not significant in the sense that they make that they should make you say, therefore they're all making it up. Um, it's a very complicated business, but I spent several years some while ago studying the Gospels to write my book, Jesus and the Victory of God, which then there's a, a simple version of it called Simply Jesus, which is recently out. Um, and uh, again and again, I find that the Gospel writers are not so much like four reporters telling you about the same football match. They're more like four historians today telling you about say your civil war and looking at it from very different angles from different perspectives but actually it is the same story underneath
1: that four biographers really made it make sense for me because you know Alistair McGrath just came out with a new biography of C.S. Lewis and it's yeah, probably
0: we're reading it right
1: now uh, and so there's a new biography with a new bit of material and it's different from every other biography that yeah. came up but the other ones aren't bad
0: they're different Yep, that's right. And, and uh, I mean, in that case, McGrath does take issue with some of the previous biographers like A.N. Wilson. Um, but but basically it's the same story. You know, he has the same chap going to the same places and writing the same books. Now,
1: the fourth speaker turned on in the room that is the, the, the orchestra of, uh, of Christianity being played is the story of the kingdom of God. you write Clashing with the kingdom of Caesar. I quote you now. It is only when we take fully into account the gospel writers' belief that Jesus was involved in the ultimate battle against ultimate forces of evil that we can begin to see how their combination of kingdom and cross and looking uh, wider at the incarnation, kingdom, cross, and resurrection begins to make sense. Now, I've got to ask, this is a battle which brings you perilously close to politics. Are you afraid of that?
0: No, I would be afraid of not coming perilously close to politics because that would imply that uh, Jesus was not actually Lord of the world. Um, When I grew up, there was an old Christian saying, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And I I believe that very firmly. And uh, uh, within my country anyway, we have officially, and most people don't believe it, but we have officially a way of acknowledging that God is God and Jesus is Lord and that we are all, supposedly subject but um, of course most people take no notice of that
1: now there are many many political battles from which to choose and here I must ask your opinion both about abortion and about same-sex marriage uh, to begin with do you think they are both objectively evil
0: well, objectively evil, that's, that's interesting. The Roman Catholics use the word objectively to mean people may not feel it like this, but actually um, uh, some things are wrong with creation. I do believe that God made male and female uh, in order to be the means of procreation and recreation and, and all the rest of it. And so it, it seems to me and it has always seemed to me from both the world of nature and the world of scripture uh, that the idea of same-sex marriage is actually a contradiction in terms marriage is something between a man and a woman and uh, and it's something that results in children being created and families being brought up that way. So the same-sex marriage is, it seems to be a contradiction in terms. However much a secular state may want to make arrangements, we had a thing in this country called civil partnerships which enabled couples of the same sex to have the same legal rights as as, uh, as married couples. But to call it same-sex marriage just still seems to be a contradiction in terms. Um, abortion is a difficult one because there are always, and, and the moral theologians know this better than I do, there are always the hard cases about um, when somebody, when the mother's life is in danger and, and that sort of thing or in cases of rape um, you know, imagine a 13 year old girl being raped by somebody is she, it, does she have to go ahead and have the baby and all that sort of thing. So there are hard cases and hard cases make bad law but I have tended to take the view over the years as I know many of my colleagues in the Church of England do that basically abortion is, is uh, at the very most it could be um, the lesser of two evils, but normally it is an evil and should be resisted.
1: Now, here comes my Catholicism, uh, the the cooperation with evil doctrine. Archbishop Charles Shapiro of Philadelphia, a friend of mine, comes on a lot, and he has a book, Render Under Caesar, in which he spends quite a lot of time saying, look, abortion is not just one of many evils. And other Christian writers like Robert George at Princeton and Timothy George at Beeson, they argue that things like redefining marriage isn't just another political debate. So when we come in your book, How God Became King, to the idea that that church and world are not going to get along, is there a priority of where they need not to get along, in your view, uh, Bishop Wright, that begins with those two issues?
0: Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a nice question. I mean, it's uh, part of the difficulty of beginning with those issues is that what we've seen over many years is the rich world arguing about sex while the poor world is desperate for justice. And uh, I, one of the reasons that I often resist being drawn into questions about um, issues to do with sex and reproduction and marriage and family life is that most, for most of the world, these look like Western luxury issues um, and, and please can they talk about the really important things. You know, there are people dying in Syria as we speak yes. because of, of all sorts of issues of justice and injustice that we, we, we bombed hundreds of thousands uh, in, of innocent people in Iraq over the last 10 years um, and, and, and we're sitting here talking about sex, you know, what is this about? So I, I, I think we need to get a global perspective and when, when we get that global perspective some of the issues that loom very large in my country as well as yours, really do, I think, need to be put in the shade by the real issues that are out there of people, um, millions of our brother and sister human beings who, who are either starving or being murdered or whatever. Um, those are the real big political issues. And and so as a matter of politics, I think we have to say, let's actually reorder the, the, the order of questions that, we, that we're going to deal with.
1: Well, that's why I go back to, to Archbishop Chaput who says you know, 55 million abortions and and to the issue of marriage, which I call one of the, the weight bearing walls of Western civilization, and I'm not at you know we will disagree about Iraq forever, and it's an interesting conversation. But war is clearly at the top of that list. Where do you put the abortion in the marriage issue? Relative, for example, on the the 10th anniversary. Well, I mean,
0: rather like saying, which of your children would you like to see murdered or, or sold into slavery? Of course, if you have lots of children, you don't want any of them. You, you want all of them to, to, to be um, healthy and flourishing. So I want uh, to see a world, a society in which wisdom and justice and, and upright living flourish and are supported and are sustained right across the board. But um, uh, but it is noticeable that in, in the Western world, we have got fixated on, on some particular issues to use, which I think are very important, and I've given a lot of attention to them. And when I was um, an active bishop, as opposed to a professor, as I am now, I was constantly um, working in those areas. But I do think we we do need to get our priorities organized. And I think, um, uh, you know, it's not just, I mean, I only mentioned Iraq, because the 10th anniversary has just happened um, just in the last 24 hours. So it's been in the news again. But um, issues of global poverty, of global um, uh, of climate uh, and what we're doing to the planet, and so on. Oh. See, these, I think, are massive issues, and we're in danger of pushing them off the agenda in order to talk about our favorite topics.
1: I'll be right back with N. T. Wright, author of How God Became King. When I return to the Hugh Hewitt Show, four <laughs> minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Bishop N. T. Wright, his marvelous new book, How God Became King: The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. I will be continuing to go through, uh, so don't go anywhere. We were talking about the collision between the kingdom that Christ inaugurated and the world, the political herods that run it, and uh, Bishop, I want to return to that for a second because here's here's a really difficult question for a journalist. You and I fundamentally disagree about the invasion of Iraq. I believe not only was it a just war, but that the world is much better off for having it occurred, And but I don't want to talk about that with you, but... How do you recommend when you have, you know, I obviously have read and deeply admired your work and esteem you, but I think you're wrong. And you obviously don't know me and don't know what I think, but you've you've already stated that you would. How ought then you and I to talk about a subject like the Iraq war?
0: actually then to be able to find a common language in which we can discuss the rights and wrongs. Um, I mean, I'm not a pacifist, let me say. There are some of my friends like uh, Richard Hayes in Duke Divinity School who I agree with about a great many things. He is actually a pacifist. He would say that war is is never the right option and that, that we must always work for other options. That has never been my position and it isn't my position now, but it's a discussion that Richard and I can have and uh, uh, we, we frequently do have that sort of discussion. But um, th- th- there are all sorts of ways in which you can you can have the discussion. One of the risks that we- that's happening in our present world is that we've forgotten how to have the really difficult discussions. And so what we tend to do is we lob verbal hand grenades ac- over the fence at one another. Oh, you're just a liberal. Oh, you're just a conservative. You're just a reactionary. You're a this or that or the other. And that's uh, we-, we have lost the art of saying now, where is the common ground? What do we agree on here and then how do we go forward from there um and uh, i i would love to have that conversation is obviously impossible now right. um on this program but um uh, the, 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 so i used to say in durham i believe in the authority of scripture i believe in the appropriate authority of tradition i also believe in the appropriate use of reason and i don't see a lot of reason out there in my country certainly at the moment
1: now i am very guilty of throwing hand grenades, because that's my business. But as I read through how God became king, verbal hand grenades, obviously, I I, I only stopped once and said, whoa, it's on page 166 when you write, "Uh, listening to the sub-Christian language on display among those exultant at the killing of Osama bin Laden in the early summer of 2001 was an example of the right-wing tendency. Anything that advances the worldview of Fox News is assumed to be basically Christian-wise and automatically justified. Wow, you pulled the pin there, Bishop.
0: Well, uh, I, was, uh, I was sitting here in the same room that I'm in right now talking to you um, when Osama uh, bin Laden got killed, and I went onto various websites to see and measure the reactions. And uh, I, I, the, the thing that I said, I was actually on a radio show not long after that, and it, it, it occurred to me, how would it be, you know, there are convicted um, Irish Republican Army terrorists who have murdered people in Ireland and have fled. To America, and they are being looked after and kept safe in towns like Boston and so on. How would it be if the British government um, moored an aircraft carrier somewhere off the Massachusetts coast and sent in the SAS? To um, take out some of those um, uh, uh, terrorists who are being sheltered in America, I suspect that your State Department—well, they wouldn't let him get near for a start—but you might have something to say about um, uh, our going after another sovereign state and using uh, doing something on their territory. I appreciate that Pakistan and Boston are not exactly the same sort of place. However, at the moment, the extradition treaty between Britain and America is ridiculously one-sided. You can um, point point the finger at somebody in the UK and we have to extradite them whether we want to let them go to your courts or not. There's a guy who's been in prison in Texas for years on that basis. We, we don't have the ability to do reverse extradition. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've, it's that kind of problem that I think we should talk about. Obviously, this isn't right. something that, that comes up in the book, but um, th- there are major issues of global justice going on here. And I don't think anyone gains by our refusing to face them.
1: I agree. And in fact, I'm so encouraged that the new pope has, has, in fact, thrown a number of these verbal grenades into his first week in office because it's going to be very good. I haven't heard. What's he been saying? Oh, he's been talking about global economic stewardship, the protection of the environment, the protection of the poor. Now, as a capitalist, and as someone, have you ever read Arthur Brooks' The Path to Freedom, Bishop? No, I haven't The road to freedom. Arthur Brooks is a devout Christian man, and he writes about why capitalism will raise the poor up. I doubt that the Pope has read that either. But when we come back from break, we'll talk about how to have these conversations, especially when Caesar's coin is involved. Bishop Wright's new book is How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. And I'm telling you, it's bracing. Stay where you are, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, Americans. Hugh Hewitt with N.T. Wright, the author of How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. The author as well of Simply Christian, one of the world's great biblical scholars. And, and to my friends who are listening who want me to engage in a political discussion with the bishop, forget it. I don't get a chance to talk with one of the great world theologians and to do that, what I do every day. I want to go back to the book, uh, Bishop, if I might. There is a passage um, that you talk about in in John chapter 12 where Greeks come and they want to gawk at Jesus. And thunder is heard. And you, you tell the story and you come to this conclusion. Jesus is no mere tourist attraction for pilgrims to come and gawk at. Jesus is to be the true world ruler. I had never read it that way before, but... I guess you're trying to communicate stop, look, listen at what happened in this passage and what it says for today.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's right. And that's so again and again in all the Gospels and perhaps particularly in John's Gospel um, that, that uh, uh, of course, it's easy for people just to gawk and say, oh, isn't he interesting? But uh, what's going on there is revolutionary moment at the heart of all human history. I I think this is something that's very difficult for us to get our heads around in the modern Western world, in Britain or America, um, that actually world history reached its climax with Jesus, and everything has been uh, Jesus shaped, whether it knows it or not. Since then, we tend to think that we in the modern world, we we uh, actually, world history reached its climax in the 18th century with our new technologies and democracies and so on. But actually, that way danger lies, and the Gospels constantly say, nope, it's all about Jesus.
1: Now, it, on page 149, not long thereafter, you write that you'd wish you'd had more courage when translating the caesar's coin excerpt when you did your translation of that a it's a remarkable admission but would you expand on that for the audience
0: yeah um when when they, they show Jesus a coin and, they, and and because they say, you know, uh, should we pay the tax or shouldn't we pay the tax? And you need to, people need to realize that uh, this has been a major political issue in Palestine in Jesus' day. Um, when Jesus was a little boy, there were riots and people were crucified for refusing to pay the Roman tax because they said, we don't believe in, in being ruled by Rome. And to pay this tax is a sign that we are being ruled by hated wicked Gentile foreigners and we don't want that. We want to be free. So um, shall we pay the tax or not was not like me saying, shall I fill in my tax form every April, which we have to do. This was a major political issue. And so Jesus uh, realizes that they want to skewer him on which side he's on. Um, And so he, he plays a trick on them. And so he says, show me the coin. Whose head is this on the coin? And they say Caesar's. And then he uses a very cryptic phrase. And it's like a riddle. It's like a joke. It's not a political philosophy. It, it, it's like just a quick one, sharp one-liner. And I think w- the, the way that you, you might um, translate it is, well, you better pay Caesar back in his own coin, haven't you? Um, because, of course, in English, pay somebody back in their own coin means give as good as you get. If Caesar is being mean to you, you'd just be mean back to Caesar. But if he's holding a coin there and somebody's saying, should we pay the tax? And he says, pay Caesar back in his own coin. It could sound as though he's just saying, OK, pay him the tax then and i think it was a deliberate double entendre as a way of playing a trick back on them because they were trying to play a trick on him so so
1: how would you advise people to understand what jesus is saying there vis-a-vis the government
0: uh, I think he's I think he's the, the sting comes in the tail because the next thing he says is pay God back in God's own coin. And and then, of course, people have, have pointed out, well, if this is Caesar's image on the coin, what does it mean to pay God back in God's own coin? Well, we as humans are made in God's image. So the answer is that actually God's kingdom always trumps Caesar's kingdom. And the way to be part of God's kingdom is to give God your whole self, which is made in his image. And that is the way to something much bigger, which will then relativize the question of whether you pay this tax to Caesar now or not.
1: Now, here's the interesting problem. I think that, that my friend Wayne Grudem, who's a very distinguished systematic theologian, would agree with everything you just said, but that in application, he has a great book out on Christianity and politics, which I've interviewed him about. In application, I doubt you two would agree in practical political terms, one out of ten issues, uh, maybe maybe three out of ten issues. I don't want to overstate it. So what's a Christian to do?
0: Uh, a Christian ought to think, to talk, to pray. Um, we... Uh, one of the curious things about this this sort of um, NATO world we live in, the North Atlantic um, um, world, is that there are some things on which we absolutely agree foundationally and other things on which we really don't. And um, we in Europe have dozens of different political philosophies sloshing around. You in America have one or two, and part of the problem that I see as an outsider, and I stress as an outsider, though I do come to America quite a lot, um, is that you're much more polarized now as a society than you've ever been in my lifetime. And it seems to me that's very dangerous because people then bundle up issues together and they think that if you check this box on this side of the page on this issue, you're going to go all the way down with that so that if you're... Um, pro-gun, you must be anti-gay, or vice versa. Uh, And most issues just don't come away clean like that. They're more complex. And so people oversimplify the world, and we do that in in Britain as well. It's just we do it uh, in different issues from what you do. And it seems to me as part of the Christian task is to think more thoroughly through the issues and to do so in dialogue, uh, in dialogue with people we disagree with. And, And I've always done my best to do that.
1: How often do you immerse yourself, for example, in in conservative periodicals like the Weekly Standard or Commentary magazine? I I don't know what the equivalents would be.
0: I, I, I I don't read at the moment. My job is to study and teach the New Testament, and I have some bright graduate students who are throwing excellent work at me, and I'm reading what they're writing. I do not have much time at the moment to immerse myself in the political issues. When I was Bishop of Durham, I was a member of the House of Lords in the UK, and so I was constantly... Um, coming up against all the many political issues that we were dealing with then. But that's uh, since th- in the last three years, I've had to concentrate much more. I actually live in the first century rather than the 21st, trying to understand the New Testament as best I can.
1: I hope on your list of to dos is a memoir, Bishop Wright, because I think that would have been a fascinating chapter. Too. I'll be right back with N.T. Wright. His <laughs> brand new book is How God Became King. The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Of course, he's also the author of Simply Christian. How God Became King is linked over at hughhewitt.com and it it's in bookstores everywhere. It is the perfect introduction to uh, the Holy Week underway and about to begin, so do not uh, do not tarry. You can get it delivered for in time for the week, or you can go to a bookstore and pick it up. How God Became King is basically everywhere, and that's a good thing. I'll be right back with N.T. Wright. Stay tuned. Fifty-five minutes after the hour, American Sue Hewitt with Bishop N.T. Wright. His brand new book, How God Became King, is a fascinating and a must-read. In our last hour together, uh, I will cover with him his theory of forgiveness. But Bishop, this is a three minute segment, which is a bridge segment. What I really want to ask you here is just a couple of personal questions. Whom do you read for fun? What do you read when you don't want to be NT right anymore and you want to put the first century away?
0: You mentioned that new biography of C.S. Lewis by Alistair McGrath. I'm halfway through that at the moment. Um, There's a very interesting, you mentioned a a memoir. I haven't actually thought of writing a memoir, but you never know. But I'm reading at the moment um, the political diaries of a British politician, you won't have heard of him, called Chris Mullen, who for most of his career was a backbencher. But he was there all through the Tony Blair and Gordon Brown years. And uh, very, very interesting stuff uh, through the 1990s and then through the last 10 years. Um, and so that that's been fun. I read poetry from time to time. I'm very fond of the work of the um, Irish poet Michael O'Shiel. Um, Oh, what else is on the go? Do you read any novels
1: at all? Do you read thrillers or anything that's um, just sort of throwaway? I,
0: well, I, I read novels on holiday occasionally. I find that when I'm working in the sort of work that I do, my 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 brain is quite taken up with lots of complicated issues. And when I, I am, mean, it's a funny thing. When I was a bishop, I actually tried to read novels sometimes, and I found it was very difficult because most of my life was taken up with trying to understand complicated human situations in this parish or this person's life. You know, as a pastor, you're constantly thinking into complex human situations. And I didn't want to spend my leisure hours doing that as well.
1: And I don't know that you have an iPod, but if you do, what is on Bishop Wright's music playlist from iTunes?
0: I have all sorts of things. Um, I, I go from Sibelius and Bach through to the Beatles and uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, Jersey Boys and uh, uh, Mozart and Schubert. And I'm very and, and, and quite a bit of jazz. I'm very eclectic musically.
1: And if we dip back and we had the camera on you when you were a teenager, would you have been the bad boy ever? Or were you always the studious scholar, theologian in the making?
0: Um, I was never a particularly studious scholar. I was all looking for every opportunity to get out there and kick a ball or hit a ball. Or you know, I played all the sports that were going, and I played as many musical instruments as I could get my hands on as well. I played the guitar and the piano and the trombone and things like that. So music and sport were were the foundation of my life, and I just managed to do enough schoolwork to get into Oxford University by the skin of my teeth, and then took off academically after that.
1: So, at what age did the light go on, saying this is what I'm called? To to do
0: oh Um, I knew from about the age of seven that I was called to be ordained, to be a a priest and a preacher. Um, It never occurred to me till I was at Oxford as a student that I might actually be, uh, that there might be such a thing as academic theology and that it might be for me. But um, uh, there was a very definite moment when I was listening to uh, a lecture and uh, the guy said, we need people who love Jesus and who love scripture and who have half a brain to get in there and do the work work. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, what a wonderful way to spend your life.
1: I'll be right back with Bishop Wright. And we'll talk about that. How God Became King is linked at HughHewitt.com. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is AndrewandTodd.com. they There with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888 1172 Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the Interview. Morning, glory, and evening, Grace. America, Sue Hewitt. Last two hours, and I've heard from you about N.T. Wright's wonderful new book, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. And uh, when I told you early last week I was going to have him on, people were excited, and he generously allocated to me two hours of his time, which turns into three hours of radio time. And I'm so happy in Holy Week to play the third hour because of the conclusion of the book, How God Became King. Bishop Wright, uh, We go to the end of the book here, and I want to read this. When we step back from our own personal anxieties and awareness of guilt, we recognize that the world as a whole needs, longs for, aches and yearns for, cries out for forgiveness, for that collective global sigh of relief. That means that nobody's need seek vengeance ever again, that nobody will bear a grudge ever again, and that the million wrongs with which the world has been so horribly defaced will be put right at last that in God's ultimate new world, there'll be no moral shadow, no lingering resentment, no character warped by another's wrong. You know, you build the climaxes in books, obviously. Were you building to this climax of forgiveness?
0: Uh I don't remember how that bit got written. Is that in the very last chapter?
1: Yes, it is. It's on pages 271 and 2.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. Well, I am looking at the chair in which I was sitting when I wrote that, but I don't remember um, how that actually came about. I guess I wrote that a couple of years ago now. Um, uh, But that theme of forgiveness has been a major theme in in several of my books um, in uh, evil and the justice of God for instance where I go into it in more detail the nature of forgiveness and and uh, vis-a-vis the nature of evil and and for me um, this idea of global um, uh, that global sigh of relief of God putting everything right at last is such a wonderful vision and of course um, for the individual Christian one of the ways in which people often come to faith is realizing that they are guilty and that God God is holding them to account, and that because of Jesus, God is forgiving them. And you asked me um, in one of the earlier segments uh, about that, and that is, of course, absolutely at the heart of the personal gospel. But I think what people often don't realize is that that very personal, very hugely important central thing is something that God intends to happen on this global and cosmic scale as well. And the Psalms are full of that, this sort of sense of delight, because God sorted the whole mess out. Um, And... And I just exult
1: in that. Now, I I wonder how you maintain your hopefulness and and your hope of the forgiveness against the backdrop, as we said in the earlier segment, uh, of chemical weapons being used in Syria, uh, of a North Korean despot who has starved his own people, of massive, just terrible things around the world, almost a crescendoing of evil and the almost near certainty that nuclear weapons will be used, if not in our lifetimes and shortly thereafter, Bishop Wright. How do you... How do you maintain that?
0: My my hope Uh, is not built on observation of stuff that is going on in the world at the moment. Um, My hope is built firmly on the fact that three days after he was crucified, Jesus of Nazareth rose again bodily from the dead. That is the basis of everything. Um, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I simply believe that Jesus rose again and that what God did for Jesus at Easter, God will do for all his people at the end, and God will actually do for the whole of creation at the end. St. Paul is very emphatic that that the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay, to share the liberty of the glory of the children of God. That's a wonderful hope, and it's built on the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the, the framework of hope. Now, of course, between now and then, humans have plenty of chances to mess stuff up, and we regularly do. Um, but I don't think, you know, if I may say so, I don't think it really helps if we simply point the finger at North Korea and Syria and other such places, because certainly we in Britain have gone around the world getting things wrong. And I dare say other imperial powers have gone around the world getting things wrong. And often it's very difficult for us to see ourselves as others see us. But there are many parts of the world that look at my country and your country. And if they make a list of the things that are wrong in the world, that's where they start, I'm afraid. You know, that's the reality. Now, you and I might might say, well, hang on, actually, they're getting that wrong. We are not part of the problem. We're part of the solution. But we have to realize that if we want global peace, if we want justice, if we want people to understand one another, we have to look in the mirror and say, actually, Britain and America are not everybody's favorite countries right now.
1: Of course. But then I think back to not the current pope, but the last one, Benedict, when he went to Regensburg. And he, and he tried to give an academic discourse on why Islam and Christianity yeah. were going to have trouble. And it became kind of a nightmare for him and for the church because he was trying to make theological points. And I, and I just look at the world and say there are some theological systems, much less political systems, which are not reconcilable. And, and so against that backdrop, Bishop Wright, and, and I wanna, I'm i going to use a question that was suggested to me by our friend uh, Mark Roberts If Christians take seriously the thesis of your book, what difference is it going to make in the way that they live every day? For example, teachers, lawyers, politicians, bankers, what do they do differently in light of this and in light of the fact that there are other systems out there which are going to absolutely reject and destroy what they believe in?
0: Yeah. course and that has always been the case i mean christianity was born into a pluralist world with massive uh, cultures that, that, that had their own agendas etc and the disciples of jesus found then as serious disciples of jesus will always find that they have to live against the grain of lots of bits of the surrounding culture and that's obviously been a problem for your country and mine that we've sort of assumed that we are vaguely or semi-christian countries and so we've we've forgotten that we actually have to live against the grain. Um, and it's now becoming a bit more apparent. And and the gospel of Jesus um, doesn't say that everyone else is as wrong as they could possibly be, because we believe that God's, God, God's image is reflected in a measure in all humans, even, even though we sin and get things wrong. Um, so the Christian has to find, and it varies from case to case, from person to person, from place to place. It's a matter of the freedom in the spirit to discern, to think think through what my responsibility here in this situation is now today and there is no one size fits all of course the one size that does fit all is Jesus and the Holy Spirit and scripture and so on Um, but within that um, God has a million different things for his people to do and a teacher in one school won't have the exact same agenda the teacher in another school will have so it's impossible for me simply to say um, okay here's what you must all do Um, except to say we all have to pray for wisdom and discernment, recognizing that we are easily deceived, and we are deceived um, by ourselves, we are deceived by our surrounding cultures.
1: Now, Bishop, I I promised last week that I would reveal the second great metaphor in how God became king (laughs) for me, and that is of the disassembled car. And and I'd like you to give the short version. People really need to read it in its full to get the impact of it, though.
0: Uh, th- th- this is I, I'm I've used this image once or twice. I'm assuming that you're talking about where I say that um, th- th- this this is what happens when somebody goes to a theologian looking for a word of advice and they <laughs> just get a, a bunch of a bunch of footnotes. Uh, uh, well,
1: well, they, well, when you take your car in because something's wrong and you come back and it's all been disassembled and they know exactly what was wrong with it, but they took it apart.
0: Yeah, that's right. That, that, um, yeah, the, the image is well, basically when, when you, you leave the car in, in the garage and you come back at the appointed hour, and there's all the, the bits of the car all over the floor, and the mechanic is quite excited because he says, I, I found the bit that was wrong, and hey, look, it's that, and that's a really interesting thing you have there, and that carburettor, that's fascinating, and so on. And the guy says, but I need to drive to work tomorrow morning. How am I going to do that? And and my uh, what I've seen in the church, in theological colleges and so on, so often, is people who spend all the time um, taking the Bible apart and, and analyzing um, this or that dogma or whatever, but people actually need to know how to pray, how to live, how to be wise and, and holy tomorrow, and uh, so we have to be able to put it back together, and you asked me uh, a while back about, about C.S. Lewis, and that's one of the great things that I take from C.S. Lewis, that um, he could analyze things, but it would always come back to um, something which comes out sharp and clean about who we are and where we are right now
1: have you seen examples of churches taking seriously the kingdom of god as you understand it and living it out and what happens how do they look different we had about a minute to the break um
0: one of the joys of my life in Durham was that there were many churches in and it's a very poor area of the north of England um, where they were doing this very seriously, where people would combine the ministry of prayer with the ministry of working with the poorest people around, with people who were suffering from severe disabilities, um, with communities where the banks had shut and the shops had shut because there was just no money around, and the churches actually rolling up their sleeves and doing that stuff. And this isn't an either or, of either preaching for conversions or working with the poor, Um, the best churches always do both.
1: Now, uh, when we come back from break, I'll continue my conversation with Bishop N.T. Wright. His brand new book is How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. You probably know Bishop Wright from his book, Simply Christian, or one of his great exegetical works on the New Testament. Uh, He is, of course, now the uh, chair of New Testament Early Christianity at the School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews, but he's a wonderful guest, and I'm abusing his time, but I will for 15 more minutes. Stay with me, America. Don't go anywhere, except perhaps to Hewitt.com. To pick up How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. You Hugh, Hugh at 21 minutes after the hour with Bishop N.T. Wright, author of Simply Christian. But, of course, his brand new book is How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Uh, you know, Bishop, one of my, uh, the questions that Mark Roberts suggested that I, I bring around to your attention is that we Americans, we don't do royalty and we're kind of proud of that, and as a result, the whole notion of kingdom is sort of foreign to us. To what extent might that explain, at least in in the United States, the reticence to pick up the language of the kingdom of God?
0: Yeah, the funny thing about that is, of course, that um, a first century king um, would be completely different from anything that we've had in Britain for the last 100, 200 years. Um, the, the culture is entirely different. We have a constitutional monarchy which is completely unlike what you'd have had in Rome or in Herod's court or anything. In fact, if you want to see what somebody in, in uh, a major court looks like, you probably do better to go to the White House than to go to Buckingham Palace. Now, I know that you, you elect one every four years or eight years or whatever. <laughs> Um, so that that's a bit of a cheap shot. But uh, I think we all actually have problems with Jesus' notion of king. And of course, there were many people in Jesus' day who were fed up with King Herod, who were fed up with Caesar, and who would have quite happily thrown the whole thing over. And yet Jesus chose to use that image. So it isn't a, qu- a question of some cultures today understanding what a kingdom is and others not. Um, it's a question of actually um, do we believe that God is actually in charge, or is God simply there to provide a bit of a spiritual backup when we feel in need of it? The danger when people say to me what you've just said, I'm not accusing you of this, but I know some people who mean this, is that they don't actually want God to be in charge of the world. They think we should be in charge of the world, and they just think God should be there to to give us a pat on the back and a smile and and to forgive us our sins and to look after us after we've died. But what's interesting, and the kingdom of God is bigger than that.
1: What's interesting about that, Bishop, is um, I, I know you you don't much care for Fox News, but one of the things that <laughs> people worry about is Christianists are Andrew Sullivan with whom I've had a very memorable exchange on this program, always accuses Christianists of wanting to take over power and impose the kingdom of God. Of course, people like me who are you know, non-establishmentarian types want nothing to do with official religions or doctrine but what you just suggested could scare a lot of... of...
0: Exactly. But that's because people don't understand Jesus' vision of the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of God looks like the meek and the poor in spirit and the humble and the brokenhearted and the hungry for justice people. And the thing is this, the kingdom of God has been going ever since because the power brokers and the bullies think that that's how you do power. Jesus actually said, it's a famous saying in Mark chapter 10, which people often there. quietly ignore that he says listen the rulers of the age of this world do things one way we're going to do it the other way if you want to be great you must be the servant and if you want to be the number one you must be the slave of all because the son of man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many now we've forgotten that and so then when people say what i just said um then people get scared and they think hey this is theocracy this means bullying christians who think they know what's right imposing it on the rest of us, but the answer is no. It's not like that. It's a matter of the people who have this hunger in their hearts to feed the hungry, to to work for the poor, to work for peace and justice. That's what the Beatitudes are about. And by the time the bullies have realized what's going on, the meek and the humble have got out there and have built hospitals and have started schools and are looking after the dying and the sick. And that's what the kingdom of God looks like on the ground. And Bishop Wright,
1: do you recommend? that people who are looking for that kingdom involve themselves in politics. There's a criticism in how God became king of the neo-Anabaptists who say, not for me, I'm not getting my hands dirty.
0: Um, uh, Yes, some people need to do that. It would be terrible to think that uh, we handed over the business of running our democratic countries to people who by definition were not Christians. If we said Christians shouldn't do that, that would be terrifying. Now, it's very difficult. Christians in politics face very difficult questions and challenges. I, I know many people in that position, and they have to make compromises, and sometimes it's very agonizing for them. But in the real world of, of, of making things happen, that's how it goes. And I would much rather have as many Christians in there as possible than say, no, no, it's a dirty business. We'll leave it, we'll leave it to the
1: now an ed- exegetical question the kingdom of god is is referenced a lot in the first three gospels less so in john and then paul is basically not writing about it what happened
0: What happened was that Jesus was launching something, and Paul was taking it forward. Jesus was launching this kingdom project. It's been launched by the time Paul is up and running, so he isn't launching the kingdom of God. Jesus has already done that. He's putting it into practice. But Paul is out there in the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, and they don't know the phrase kingdom of God, which is a Jewish phrase in the first century, goes back to the book of Daniel, to the Psalms, to Isaiah. So, But when, but Paul instead talks about Jesus as Kyrios, which means Lord, which is for them a Caesar word, and as Christos, which is Messiah, which is a king word. So he's talking about God um, doing what he's doing through King Jesus, who is the Lord. So Paul has translated the notion of God's kingdom, which is kingdom of God, um, from the gospel into the, uh, the, the language which is now necessary if the project is to go forward.
1: Now I want to switch to one of the topics that you deal with quite extensively and how God became king, which is the, the shortening of the story to the beginning and the end. And the way, especially this resonates with me with my experience in American evangelicalism, both Roman Catholic and Protestant varieties, is Jesus came, believe in him, you're saved. And, you know, we got lots of friends in common, I'm sure, who were saved in such a fashion. Our friend Mark Roberts went to a Billy Graham crusade as a young man, became saved. Are you saying that the, the old Christian phrasing, believe in Jesus and you will go to heaven when you die, that that isn't true?
0: No, of course it's, of course it's true, but it's not the whole truth. And that isn't actually the way in which the New Testament usually puts it. Um, it, it it's, it's very interesting that when you believe in Jesus, of course, in the New Testament, you would get baptized, you would become a member of the church, and you would be assured that God would raise you from the dead on the last day. Interestingly, they don't talk very much about going to heaven when you die. That's uh, uh, something we're much more worried about than they were. Of course, you have the, the dying thief on the cross next to Jesus in Luke chapter 23 jesus says today you will be with me in paradise yeah fine okay paul says my desire is to depart and be with christ which is far better yes that's fine that's what we believe will happen to jesus people those who believe in him and trust him and belong to him after they die but i note i mean i've just quoted two out of the three or four instances in the new testament the new testament doesn't encourage us to focus on that as the main substance of the message. The main substance of the message is, listen, this world has a new boss and he's called Jesus, and he died on the cross to take away all the evil, including yours and mine, and he rose again to launch this project of new creation of the kingdom of God, and that's the thing we ought to be signing up for. And to have the main message about something after that, about what happens after our death, sort of cuts the nerve of the challenge and vocation that we ought to be responding to in the present.
1: And that is elaborated at great length in the brand new book, How God Became King. My guest is Bishop N.T. Wright. I have him for two more segments. Don't go anywhere. The Forgotten Story of the Gospels is the subtitle. The book, How God Became King, is linked at hughhewitt.com. I know many of you last week went out and got it, but if you missed that, of course, we'll make available the podcast eventually. But How God Became King is in bookstores everywhere, and I think it's going to revolutionize quite a few people's approach to understanding the kingdom message. I'll be right back with Bishop Wright. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, it's the penultimate segment of my conversation with Bishop N.T. Wright about his new book, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Bishop, uh, C.S. Lewis lived through the war, and so he had a perfect experience of human suffering at close hand. You were a bishop, which meant that you had to enter into people's lives at a level that most theologians don't get to at the level where suffering is there in very real ways every single day how do you press through that
0: oh my goodness it's a huge one um it depends entirely who they are and and, and what the particular problem is. Um, I, you know, I'm in regular touch at the moment with a former student whose mother is dying of cancer, and she, the former student, is being blamed by the mother for not looking after her and all sorts of things. So, I mean, I'm, I'm quite close up as a pastor still to some real issues of human suffering. All one can do is find ways back to the foot of the cross. The cross is the point where the living God came into the middle of the mess, um, pain and shame of the world, and took its weight upon himself. And that goes way beyond anything that we can analyze or even fully understand. But I just know that those who find their way back to the cross in the story, however they do it, listening to Bach's Matthew Passion or looking at a picture or whatever, will find that somehow the God who loves them more than they can imagine will meet them there.
1: Now, Now, Bishop, driving around right now all over America... Are hundreds of thousands of people who don 't know what that means what do you think how, how do you explain to them what that means they, they just they 're unchurched eighty five percent of Phoenix, yeah. one of my biggest it, markets don 't it, go it's to a church strange
0: thing um, that somehow the image of the cross, which most people still have an idea what that 's about, is about a human being who came as the living presence of the God who made the world into our world in the middle of history and somehow reaches out his arms it's a very graphic image he reaches out his arms to east and west to north and south to rich and poor to young and old to male and female and he says come to me if you're having a rough time and i'll sort it out for you and that image of the cross Um, millions and millions of people, even if they don't really understand anything much more or haven't heard very much more about it, um, that can actually speak to them enough to get them started on the way of following this Jesus and finding out just who he is and what it means for them.
1: Towards the end of How God Became King, you write, I have written about this elsewhere, but it is perhaps worth reiterating it. If you belong to Jesus, the Messiah, if his spirit dwells in you, if you are a worshiper of the one true God, maker of heaven and earth, then, however, you may feel at the moment, whether you are sick or healthy, handsome or jaded, you are simply a shadow of your future self. Oh. God intends to transform the you you are at that moment into a being, a full, glorious, physical being who will be much more truly you than you've ever been before. Do you have trouble making postmodern people believe or even begin to accept the premise?
0: Um, Actually, I think postmodern people find it easier than modern people. Um, Modernists like Richard Dawkins, who we mentioned in an earlier segment, um, just find all that stuff rubbish and incredible, and they think that the present world is all that there is. I think one of the gains of postmodernity is that that's all been shaken up, and people now realize maybe there are different types of reality, and maybe one of the things that the living God is going to do is to take the present world and, and transform it in some wonderful, radical, new way. And that's the promise which the New Testament encourages us to live off.
1: Uh, but but at the same time that that promise is out there in the postmodern world, there are a thousand uh, products for sale on the supermarket shelf of spirituality, uh, of Bishop Wright. And
0: that was. Oh, in Jesus' day as well. Um, the, the thing that makes it different is, of course, Jesus' own resurrection, and that's why I come back again and again. None of this makes sense. None of this is really that believable unless you say that actually Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead on the third day, and that's why I wrote a big book about the resurrection a while back and why my book, Surprised by Hope, deals with it a lot, um, because without that, we're just whistling in the dark. Um, if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, I think I I'm not sure what I would do. I would probably go and be a music critic or something like that. So all
1: parts of this week: <laughs> um, Holy Thursday, uh, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the re- they're all necessary. But you you can't leave any of them out.
0: Exactly. That that that's exactly right. You can't have the one without the other. The story. That's why it's a story. If we try to turn it into a set of detachable doctrines will get it wrong. That's a modernist trick. We have to learn to live with the whole story. And as we read the story, and most people have got access to a Bible um, some way, shape, or form, read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, and you'll find that it becomes your story.
1: One more segment coming up with Bishop N.T. Wright. His new book, How God Became King, is really so appropriate for this week. Don't miss the opportunity to enrich your life by going and gay. It's linked at HughHewitt.com. It's in bookstores everywhere. The Forgotten Story of the Gospels need not be forgotten. I'll be right back with Bishop Wright to conclude our conversation. Don't go anywhere. 44 minutes after the hour. uh, Bishop Wright, I want to thank you for spending so much time with me. The book, How God Became King, is linked over at HughHewitt.com. And I always take a moment to say to an author after a long interview, is there anything that you know in my blindness I missed that I ought to have pointed out about the book?
0: Uh, I don't think so. We've covered um, the, the the main the main things in it. I think perhaps perhaps there's just this that uh, the, the gospels are more like a play which are inviting us to become characters in it than they are like a novel which you just read and think, oh, well, what a funny story. And that something there's something there about the way that Christians read the Gospels, instead of just thinking, oh, well, isn't that interesting? We ought to be saying, wait a minute, this can become our story. We, we need to be involved in this.
1: You recommend Ignatian spirituality exercises at one point, which surprised well,
0: they're me. they're not for everybody, but um, there, there, are, there are many people who would gain and profit enormously from that.
1: Now, I want to close with two questions from my, my colleagues who helped me prepare. One, Mike Regal wrote to me, if I were interviewing the bishop on a political show in America, I'd want him to discuss how he thinks what he is saying about the kingdom of God should challenge our political thinking in a quest to be faithful Christians. And he goes on to quote your book, Evil and the Justice of God. Evil then consists, actually, it's from surprise by Hope. Evil consists not in being created, but in the rebellious idolatry by which human worship and honor elements of the natural world rather than the God who made them. The result is that the cosmos is out of joint. Instead of humans being God's wise vice regents over creation, they ignore the creator and try to worship something less demanding, something that will give them a short-term fix of power or pleasure. Boy, that's grim, Bishop. <laughs>
0: And the world gets grim. The world has many grim sides to it. I mean, I, I'm I'm basically an ancient historian before I was anything else, and I've studied the worlds of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and, and they are grim. Um, and um, interestingly, the ancient Greek world of Athens in the 5th century BC was a democracy, and we believe in democracy. I believe in democracy. I don't want to live in a non-democratic system. But there's a danger that we've idolized democracy itself and imagined that as Long as people vote, this is going to make for the best of all possible worlds. And uh, I think when you realize what it means for God to be king, you realize that even democracy has to be answerable to something other than just the will of the people. Then ultimately, um, uh, if you just have the will of the people, that collapses into a form of atheism.
1: And, And then my friend Steve Thames, it's just perfect, wrote to me. But when and to what extent should the church engage with, employ, and even adopt worldly kingdom means to achieve heavenly kingdom goals? Are there limits to that engagement? What would the bishop's guidelines for such engagement look like, and what competing kingdom values shape those
0: guidelines? Well, a great question, and and it would take about a week (laughs) of of, of five-hour seminars every day to begin to tease that out. uh, the, the The answer always has to be to go back to Jesus himself and to see what Jesus is doing as well as teaching about what it looks like to live in the kingdom uh, it 's very interesting. people have great assumptions about this, but the 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 Gospels are not always saying exactly what we might expect them to um, and uh, ultimately. One of the things which I love about the Kingdom of God and about the Bible itself, actually, is that uh, it's a way of opening us up in freedom, in the power and presence of the Spirit, that we have to do our thinking. We have to read and think and discuss and pray. There is no hand-me-down about this. Um, the, The whole thing is designed so that each generation has to do its own homework and figure out riskily, dangerously, prayerfully, humbly... Um, how to live wisely in the, the time and day we find ourselves in.
1: And Bishop Wright, I want to conclude on a personal note. You're 64. You've had this prodigious output, this influential output. But a lot of people out there are tired and they think, I, you know, I'm going to retire and lay down. It doesn't sound like you're retiring, but I know there must have been times in which you were discouraged or tempted to do so. What's your advice to people who are just weary and how long ought they to plan on being involved in this kingdom building?
0: That, that's that's a great question I some for some reason that I don't understand I seem to have been blessed with high energy levels and people sometimes comment on that um, and so uh, it seems to me much is expected of those to whom much is given uh, I want to go on using the energy that I've been given to do the work that I've been given to do as long as I reasonably can um, I don't know whether that'll be another five years or what we'll, we'll see um, but uh, people are very very different some people I know some in my family just have a different metabolism to me, and God doesn't ask us um, to, to go charging off doing stuff that we're not suited for. There are a million different levels of tasks that are necessary in the kingdom, not least prayer. I've mentioned prayer a few times this afternoon talking to you, and uh, uh, prayer is just so important, and anyone can do that, whatever sage and age they're at. And that's really the foundation of everything. So um, we're all different, and I believe in freedom. I believe in vocation. I believe in people thinking through what it means to be the person that God wants them to be. And that will always be different, but prayer will always be at the heart of it.
1: Then let me conclude with this question. How do you, N.T. Wright, pray on a daily basis?
0: I get up as early as I can, which usually is about sort of half past five in the morning. I make myself a very large pot of tea. I then follow through the Anglican order for morning prayer only instead of the readings set from the old and new testament i have my own system of readings from the um, the Hebrew Old Testament to the Greek New Testament, so that's that is normally takes quite a bit of time. And then I I pray on, on a daily basis for some people, on a weekly basis for, for others. And uh, so that is, for me, how I start the day. If I don't start the day like that, I feel peculiar for the whole of the rest of the day. And then um, in the evenings, I use the shortened form of evening prayer uh, before I go to bed. And uh, that doesn't usually have much in the way of sustained readings, because by the time I get to there, I'm usually quite tired.
1: (laughs) Bishop N.T. Wright, thank you so much for your generous time. Thanks for your work, and for especially how God became king, the forgotten story of the Gospels. Have a wonderful and a happy Easter.
0: Thank you, and the very same to you and your listeners. It's been very good talking to you. Thank you, Bishop Wright. That concludes
1: today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.